We were supposed to have gone out. You know, you talk about being organized. organized. Les uh, told me that he had wanted myself and my wife to go out and have dinner with this man. Well, somehow we had a failure to communicate. But that's been the story of my life. I will, I just met him, like I said. I've never heard him speak. He comes from Boston, Massachusetts, somewhere up east. Uh, I would like to introduce this time now, yeah, Indian John. You could have sent the smoke signal. <laughs> I am, uh, I am very happy to be here. I like to, uh, Thank the committee for inviting me to be here. I I don't know. I always seem to feel somewhat special when I go to these conferences. You know, they treat you so well. They take you out for dinner and you can order anything you want. And you don't have to pay for it. And it's... Uh, It's just the, uh, uh, something that I, I certainly would have never, uh, believed if someone had told me in the early days when I was young in the program that I, if I should stay sober, that one day I could stand up in front of uh, so many people and be willing to talk about myself that for so many years I told lies about. I suppose that there are many rewarding experiences in sobriety. One of them, one of them is to be able to stand up and, and to speak without having uh, fear. I had a lot of trouble in the early days to to stand up and speak. I I, I honestly felt uh, I was I couldn't do it. Uh, I suppose that. Uh, when I arrived in AA, I brought with me a, a very uh, unhealthy attitude about myself. I I never went to school. I couldn't read and write. And I felt very uncomfortable about it. I, I really didn't want too many people to know that. Because uh, I looked upon it as uh, that you're not as good as the next person. And I and I knew that I never talked with English. And so I someone said you didn't have to speak to stay sober and for two years I didn't. <laughs> but you know, there's something happened to us in AA. One night I decided maybe if I should learn some big words. So in our country there is a place called Wells, uh, where it's called uh, uh, Wellesley Mass, where you have all the big shots go to those meetings. You know, like lawyers and doctors and uh, psychiatrists. And I thought I would go over there and learn some big words, prepare myself so when I speak, people knew I was well educated. 
So I learned a lot of big words, but I don't know what in the hell they meant. In the meantime, I've learned that a lot of people with a lot of educations are crazy, too. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I met couple I felt who were educated beyond their intelligence. And, 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 and so I quit. But I suppose, uh, uh, you know, now that uh, 23 years has gone by and I still don't have an education... I still don't talk with English, and all the things that I was so ashamed of are still, I still walk with them, but for some unknown reason that when I get up, I don't have this feeling that I used to have at one time. I don't feel that, and I know what kind of people I'm talking to. I've been in a program long enough. I know that probably in this room you have some lawyers sitting here, you have some priests, and I know you have an undertaker, because I met him this evening. I think he's a workaholic, he looked me over. <laughs> I really don't believe he has another problem, I think he's, a, he's an undertaker. But to, to be able to stand up and to be able to be willing to talk about myself, you have to say that something happened in my life. And my life in AA started back in 1957. I was in a mission in Syracuse, New York. And uh, an Indian friend walked in that I have once met him in Tupper Lake, New York. I lived in the Skid Row for seven years, and in those years, I traveled slowly but steady, and one night, I was in Tupper Lake, New York. It's the town where I thought I, met, I might get a job in lumber camp, and I met this man that I have never met him before, but he drank with my father, he said. He brought me to his home. I stayed there that night, and I left the next day. But Ike became an alcoholic, and he lost a home, lost a wife. She was a nurse. And he wound up in Salvation Army in Syracuse, New York, and they started a meeting. And Ike started to go to meetings, and about a month later, someone said to him, there is another Indian in the mission. And he looked terrible, and that was me. And so I walked in one night, and uh, he says to me, Do you remember me? I said, Yes. He said, I am a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I said, Good for you. <laughs> he says, Would you like to go to an AA meeting? And I said, No. Because I, 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 I looked bad, and I always had trouble with wine stores, and they usually uh, take about three weeks before my face would clear up, and I still had a long hair, and uh, I wasn't dressed too well, and I've learned in my recovery that I'm a, I'm a super sensitive person. 
I get hurt easily, and I don't suffer well. Uh, and and in my condition, I, I don't go anyplace. You know, I wouldn't even walk down the main street when I'm when I'm sober and I'm not dressed. But I said the magic word. He said, "You can have coffee and donuts, and they're free." And I said, "We'll go." And I walked into the central group, a group like this. The first man I met at the door was a lawyer who have been sober for 13 years, and every Friday night, his job was to stood at the door and he would shake hands to every member who walked in there. And when he'd seen me with my wine sores and long hair, he, he had this big smile and he would grab my hand with his two hands. He says to me, Am I so glad to see you? And I wasn't glad to see him at all. <laughs> and I sat down, and uh, my my first speaker in AA was a lady judge. She said, if there is anyone who is new here tonight, please try to identify. Now, can you imagine, I'm in my late 20s. I have been away from my reservation uh, since at the age of 14. I spent four years in Fiji camp in Patton, Maine, in washing dishes at the lumber camp. And I joined the Canadian Infantry when I was 18, where I spent three years and a half washing more damn dishes. <laughs> and uh, I took a drink when I was 21, and I lived in the Skid Row for seven years. I have not been married, never had a driving license, never owned a car, and you know, I was sitting there, I couldn't read and write, uh, I had wine sores and long hair, dirty. I'm in a mission and supposed to pay 35 cents a night, and I'm behind three weeks' rent. Uh, uh, I have financial problems. And, uh, uh, and, uh, uh, and listening to a lady judge telling me, please try to identify. You know, can you imagine me saying to myself, you know, I'm just like her? And it isn't that I have never met a judge before. You know, I met one particular judge 43 times. And he never once asked me to try to identify. As a matter of fact, the last time we met, I was facing the judge one morning, and he calls me John. I thought he was very touching. <laughs> and, you know, night before, I have just accepted Christ as my personal Savior. I was in a mission, and Tom will run the mission. He will always give you a bed if you attend his services. I knew that for years. 
And I was sitting there, and a fellow get up, and he said that for many years, he was a bum just like us. Until one night, he said, in this mission, I accepted Christ as my personal Savior. And since then, he said, he got married, he bought a home, he has a new station wagon, he has a good job. And then he says, any of you bums can do the same thing. All you have to do is move forward, and I've thought about it, and I said to myself, well, that seems to be simple enough. So I moved forward. And I knew nothing about Christ. The four years that I spent in lumber camp, I used to listen to lumberjacks talking about him. And, 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 and by the time they finished with him, you wouldn't believe me either. But this guy, he kneeled down beside me and he says to me, son, you're safe. Well, I looked at the judge that morning, and I didn't feel that I would save at all. He said, John, do you know how many times you've been up here? Now, when you, you know, when you live the way we do, sometimes we don't keep track of everything. He says, you've been up here 43 times. And I said, no wonder he looked familiar. <laughs> then he said that the Fayette Park in this city, that's pretty decent people, and it's not for a bum like you. Then he said, you know, you're Indian. That's all you do. You come to this city, you work for one week, you get drunk, and you get into a fight. That's all you do. And then he took his glasses off, and I felt that I've had it. He gave me six months in Jimmyville. And I said to myself, this guy never liked Indians anyway. Because he was bald-headed. I figured maybe my great-grandfather got to him first before I did. I've heard so many speakers in AA who tell me that they didn't like, they didn't want to drink, or they didn't, they didn't want, they didn't believe they're an alcoholic because their father drank. And that's what happened to me. I never wanted to drink when I was a kid, simply because when my father died, he had a half a gallon a jug under his bed. I was young. And five years later, we lost uh, eight members in our family. My family died with TB. And when I was 13 years old, my mother was dying with TB. And uh, when I was 14 years old, I was alone, and uh, my mother was gone, and I couldn't find a home. Because at one time, people were afraid if you had TB. So I lived in an old empty house for about a year with a dog. 
But I suppose I'm, uh, I'm a dreamer, I guess. I, uh, I used to lay between two mattresses and with a dog, and I used to say to myself that one day I would leave home, and one day I would have a big home and big job and nice car and a lot of clothes and a nice girl. Because I felt if you have these things, then you don't feel the way you do inside, and people would look up to you. And you know, Indians in my reservation, they used to talk about lumber camps in Maine. So one day I decided to grab the freight, and I did. And sometimes later, I arrived in Patton, Maine. I walked into the office, and I asked, if I could get a job, and I was told that I was too young. The fellow said that there, there is a lumber camp at 26 miles or 23 miles in the woods. The army has taken all the men. They need a dishwasher, and if you want to walk that far, it's up to you. And since that I had no place to go, I went to lumber camp. And there I met a fellow by the name of Bill Langster, who was in charge and became a good friend. And now and then he would bring me home, and I met his family. And I was with him for four years, and his family took a vote one day and decided that I should leave. They felt that it was unhealthy, that I should live with much older people and that I should join the younger people. So I decided to go back to Canada because my idea was to put my put the uniform on and go back to my home and show my people that I have grown now a soldier. I was told that if I should join the American army, I would be so far away when I get a pass, I couldn't go home. And I, I didn't join the army because I'm a patriotic person. <laughs> Sick as I was then, I knew that this country was ours before it was yours. <laughs> and about, I wasn't about ready to risk my life for it. I was hoping maybe I can win a medal or two without getting hurt. But I didn't know that uh, if you don't have an education, then you can't go on training. But I didn't know also that uh, while maybe I can be very comfortable washing dishes in lumber camp, uh, I felt altogether different in the Canadian Army. And I suppose that's the first time I had to face myself. I didn't know how. And I never went home because I didn't want anybody to know that I was washing dishes. And about a year later, I asked the Army to, to give me a test because I honestly felt that I wasn't any... Uh, I didn't feel that other kids were any smarter than I was. So they gave me a test and they marked me M4 which meant that I wasn't qualified to be trained. And I think looking back in my own life, 
the worst kind of a sickness that I have is that I've totally accepted it, that I have never questioned it. And it took years of sobriety, and it took a lot of wonderful people in the program before I was willing even to take another look. And it's sad when you have to, when you know that God himself gives every human being right to choose for his own life. And I think when you allow other people to make that choice and to accept it, you might say that I had a problem long before I took a drink. But I accepted it. And I got my discharge when I was 21 years old. With a friend. He says to me, what do you say that you and I go out and buy a suit, then we'll go and have a drink and we'll meet some girl. That's what we did. We went to a blurry cafe in Montreal in the third floor where they had an orchestra and the girls singing, and that's where I took my first drink. And I like to share with you because this is my personal opinion. I believe that I am a type of person who needed a drink just to talk to somebody because of uh, such unhealthy attitude that I had about myself. I certainly needed a drink just to ask a girl. I've heard a thousand times in AA, and I identify with it for the first time I hear it. You know, when I drank, alcohol took away those things that robbed me when I was sober. I felt good. I could talk to anybody, and it wasn't bad. See, what alcohol did to me at the age of 21, it was good, no matter how you look at it. I think there is something wrong whether you drink or not when you can't talk to other people because you feel stupid or because they're smarter than you are. Whether you drink or not, I think you got a problem. And so in the early days, you know, I went out with a girl the first night I got drunk. It was about time. You know, I was 21 years old. And I didn't get up in the morning and say, Christ, this will kill me. I couldn't wait to drink again. <laughs> and someone say, why you drink, John? I said, don't get personal. <laughs> when I drank, if you didn't like me, you had problems. I've been watching too many John Wayne movies. You know, I used to love John Wayne. I really do. I would go in the morning and stay there. I didn't like the way he killed Indians. And I think there's a lot of people like John Wayne. I mean, there's nothing wrong with me liking John Wayne. I think there's something wrong when you're in a show all day. But, but what I look back now and I say, why did I like John Wayne? I like the same thing that people like. The people like the quality of what man represents. There is something very special when any man who, who lives and walks and what he believes in, rather than one who looks for approval and acceptance in life. They say, faith is the spirit of independence. 
the courage of a man's conviction. Faith, then, is something greater even than what you feel. But I never even understood. But I I loved what John Wayne, my sickness was, for better than 30 years, I have never once considered that qualities I seen in John Wayne reserved to all human beings. I fell. The only people could have him is John Wayne. <laughs> Except when I drank, then I become one. And I liked it. In the early days, it was good. If someone had told me at the age of 21 in Bluery Cafe in Montreal that if I continue on drinking, that I would be living in the Skid Row for 70 years, I too would have never believed. How can anything be so bad when it feels so good? It took uh, years in AA and a lot of an education that AA has to offer for me to find a new insight that allows me to look back and to see those things that I have passed by in life. But tonight when I look back, I can honestly tell you that I was an alcoholic tonight I took my first drink. That while maybe it is true that alcohol gave me a freedom, on one hand, it started to rob me right away because I have never been a social drinker. I have never been. In the early days, I was young and I was strong and booze couldn't put me down that easy. But, you know, it's a progression. For all of us, it doesn't matter where you come from. It's a progression, and it's a total, uh, like uh, like uh, some well-educated people would say, it's a total deterioration. <laughs> oh, you like that for brain work. It's cunning, baffling, and powerful. That's what it is. It'll kill you. Kill you. And that's what happened to me. And in those seven years, I tried everything. I went to see Tom, and in the early days, Tom would talk to me. Years later, he wouldn't even look at me. Major Harvey would bring me to his office, and he would talk to me. Years later, he didn't want to see me. I went to listen to Billy Green one time for because Tom said he could help me. And I was sober for 28 days. If Billy Graham stayed for a year, I would have been sober. But he left, and I got drunk. And Judge Darcy gave me six months in Jimmyville, and I said to myself, I never listened to Billy Graham again. <laughs> and like all of us, I tried. The night that I was invited to come to Alcoholics Anonymous, I didn't even know that I was an alcoholic. And you know, when you live the way I do, you walk with plenty of evidence. But we learn also in AA that for some unknown reason that no matter how much evidence you have, they don't seem to give you the information that you need to make the strength of reason to make a reasonable judgment about your life. And I used to think in the early days that 
Uh, it was only me who was like that because I never went to school. But after 23 years in the program, I have found out that it's not so. There is a lot of brains who are here tonight. They didn't arrive here because they figured out they were alcoholics. Matter of fact, sometimes people with brains are hardest not to crack. Because they think. <laughs> but after that meeting, I was leaving because I didn't feel that I belonged here. But this lawyer, who had been watching me, I suppose, he stopped me and he put his arms around me and he says to me, uh, I have some friends here. I want you to meet them. And at at one time in, in, in my area, people used to tell the new people, come back because we need you. And that's what they told me. And I suppose what touched me on my first meeting probably is something much greater than the words could have given me about the nature of my sickness. I think what touched me was that I felt that uh, people needed me. And that has grown in my life as the years have gone by. You know, I arrived here yesterday afternoon, stranger, and I walk into a meeting, and I felt the same thing I felt 23 years ago, a feeling of belong without explanation. And I think that if there is God, he certainly works through people. And I came back, and in the early days, I didn't know what was going on. I didn't understand the words. I memorized. I remember this lady judge who used to get up. Every meeting I went to, she spoke, I thought. She used to get up, and she used to say that it's a mental obsession that precedes the first drink. And once you take a drink, now is coupled with a physical compulsion. And I would say, holy Christ. <laughs> you know, I memorized it two years later, and I still didn't know what in hell she was talking about. I used to wish if I had her disease. I thought hers was high class. But I remember one night she got up, you know, and she always talked about waking up in wall-to-wall carpet, she said. And sometimes she don't remember how she arrived. Well, I woke up in sidewalk many times. And sometimes I don't remember how I get there. And then she would say that I would be so sick that I would crawl to a john in the wall-to-wall carpet. And when I arrived there, she said, I have never used the John the way it was designed. She said I would stick my head in there like if I was looking for serial number. Now, I can identify with that. She said right after I finished puking, I would say to myself, I have to get me a drink. Now, what I can see for the first time is two people. One, a lady judge, whose father is a judge, 
and husband a director in a general hospital. She lives in the big house in the hill that she talks about. But I see an Indian who lives in the sidewalk, who has a long hair, fine stores, couldn't read and write, and people step over him. But one morning, two people woke up. One, a judge in a home in wall-to-wall carpet, an Indian in a dirty old sidewalk. Neither one of them remember how they arrived. The judge crawls to a John in wall-to-wall carpet, an Indian crawls to a dirty old sidewalk. And the question I ask, what in the hell is the difference? Whether you crawl to a $100,000 home or whether you crawl in sidewalk, crawling is crawling. <laughs> you know? And when they both arrive, they both puke their guts out. <laughs> and in case you don't know, I have traveled all the way from Boston to tell you there is nothing I-class about puking. <laughs> puking is puking. You can't honestly say that mine tastes better than yours. And I just had my dinner. I feel like I'm going to puke. <laughs> and I think that when, you, when you're talking two years in the program and what AA would start doing with my mind, you know, we say that we are one people. But do we see each other as one people? I certainly, in the early days, could not see myself in her because I could not let go of what I was. And then I met my sponsor. We talk about that today, about sponsorship. My sponsor, Pat. I have known Pat for years. I've never liked Pat. Pat was a skidrow bum with a degree, and there is nothing worse than a skidrow bum with a degree. <laughs> and Pat and I would wound up in Jimmyville sometimes, and they would give him a job cutting hair, and I would wash his floors. And he always reminded me that he was a little bit farther up than I was. And I didn't know then, but I couldn't handle something like that. We would wound up in Salvation Army, and Major Harvey would give him a job working in the office, and they would give me a job working on a truck for a dollar a week. And, of course, you know, he knows all the clothes. In no time, he's all dressed up. You know, probably some poor bastard died in cirrhosis of liver, and he's wearing his clothes, <laughs> looking down on me. And I used to say to myself, next time we get drunk, I'm going to kill the bastard. <laughs> And a couple of times, I almost did. He used to say to a bum, don't drink with that Indian. He hits you for nothing. <laughs> but Pat doesn't know when I sober, I save all these things in my head. And when I drink, I take them out one by one. <laughs> but Pat walked in one night in Central Group. He's all dressed up. He had a girl with him. 
he walks over and he says, John, I'm your sponsor. And then he says to me, I have a new car outside. And it was blessing because I suppose I am like many of us. I didn't want people in AA to know where I was living. And, you know, people ask you to write home, and I would never accept it. Because I, I knew that living in a mission was not an acceptable thing, and it's not even today. There's a lot of things about me that I didn't want people to know, and God put a man in my life that I didn't have to worry about because Pat was like me. And every night he would pick me up and he would bring me to a meeting and he used to bring me have a sandwich. He used to say that he could only eat half of it. And I've earned and I've learned years later that Pat never eats sandwiches. And he used to stop in the restaurant and he used to tell the boys, we have to get a sandwich for that Indian. And the bastard would bring me another half the next night. <laughs> Pat uh, was sober 17 years, and he took a drink. And Pat died in a sidewalk that we shared many times. But I often talked about Pat. I was in a discussion meeting the other night in 11 Steps, and someone read a prayer of St. Francis. And when he said that, Lord, I pray that I may understand rather than to be understood, I was thinking about Pat, that how, how much he has learned in the program, and he knew what love was all about, because I suppose that's what love is. When you help a person especially when you don't want that person to know that you're helping him. And God put somebody in my life was very special. It was Pat, six months later, who stopped the car, and he says to me, John, I know you love AA, but if you want to stay sober, you, you, better, you better leave the mission. You have to find a home. I wasn't ready to leave the mission. I felt that if I, if I should stay in the mission and go to meetings, I would be all right. But I think uh, God must have been on his side because one night, mission burned down. <laughs> and three o'clock in the morning, I knocked at the door and Pat opened the door and I said to him, mission burned down. <laughs> he said, that's the grace of God. And... The next day, he brought me to the 12th Step House. They gave me a job. They paid me $7 and a half a week and a free bed. And my job was to wash floors and wax them, answer the telephone call, make coffee, and, and, and wash dishes. And, you know, among many wonderful things that has happened in my life, not only that I have learned to live like a white man, dollar down and dollar a week. But I bought me a dishwasher. I had a fly all hooked up and my daughter filled it up and I said to her, let me push the first button. 
I pushed the button. He's standing there watching me. I pushed the button, and it hums, and I said, hum, you cheap bastard. <laughs> he said, what's that supposed to mean? I said, you'll never understand. But I got, about a year later, I got, I got into trouble, and they throw me out. Some lady called one night. Uh, her name was Han. I have never met her. But she wanted help. People came to this place, and they play cards all night. I told them that someone needed help, and when they find out who she was, they told me that she's been around for years, and that's all she does. Is use people in AA. And you know, sick as I was then, I knew it was wrong. But my problem, I never knew what to do when I was right. I like what Father Martin says, man is a rational man and he must learn to function with his head. I have always lived on my feelings. I have never believed something greater in life to control. My feelings. My feelings always control my reasoning. And trying to justify it because if you hurt me, it's not my fault if I hurt you back. And they hurt me. <laughs> they hurt me. And I act like I always acted. I upset the table while they were playing cards. And I punch one of them right in his mouth. And I knock him down right on his ass, too. And that was my first 12-step call. And they throw me out. And I'm walking down the Fayette Street. If you told me that night, the reason they throw me out is because I didn't know how to live. You know, that's the thing about recovery. The reason they throw me out that night is because I didn't know how to act when I was right. They were good enough to call my sponsor, and three o'clock in the morning he picked me up and he brought me home. And next day he brought me to Major Harvey. Major Harvey gave me a job for a dollar a week, and I was with him for a year and a half. And I went to meetings every night. And you know, in 23 years, I, I can tell you that I very seldom missed a meeting. And it had saved my life. In the early days, uh, I, I, in, you know, when I was sober five years, I was still living in Skid Row. I was 34 years old, and uh, I couldn't support myself. I was having a lot of trouble talking to myself by this time to people in AA because, you know, I felt that other people grow so fast. You know, they. The, you know, Christ, it's over six months, and they talk about getting their license back. And they talk about uh, uh, getting their job back. Some of them even brag, and they said, I'm back in big bed. <laughs> you know, I'm sober five years, and I'm sleeping in an empty car with white cats that nobody wants. <laughs> you know, and if you dealt, if you tell people, you know, that if you don't have a job, they will tell you, like, why don't you take a fourth step? And I would say, why don't you drop dead? You know. And after a while, I was seriously felt that I was different. And I felt that I was, was, I knew where I was going. 
with expenses paid. <laughs> Traveling on a jet and gets there fast to tell you about me. For better than 30 years, I've told lies about you. And so I think that any time I tell my story, what I can see more than anything else, with all honesty, I see people in my life that if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't be here. I don't know what you call that. And I also know that today that AA has unfolded in my life the way it did, it could never happen any other way. And if I was to live my life all over again, in order to be where I am, and I like where I am, you know, it's not hard for me to kneel down tonight and thank God for my life today. Having so many friends, being treated like if I was something special, to have a woman who loves me just the way I am, to have six children who have never seen me drunk, who have never been hungry, to have a nice home. Yes, I like many things about me. And if I was to live my life all over again, I would have to go through everything I did, including some of the things I did in AA that I will never be proud of. So God is good for me. But I slept in the men's room in Marlboro that night, and I was lonely, and I was scared. I had no money. I had no job. And next morning I left. I went to meeting that night and I met Paul, who owned a restaurant. He said to me, come see me tomorrow morning. And I went there. And while I was sitting there, the waiter says to me, do you know of any contractor in town that could remodel and paint houses? I said, I do. I said, me. She said, I didn't think you were a contractor. I said, I didn't think so either. She said, would you come over and give me an estimate? I said, I sure will. So I went over and I gave her an estimate for 300 and some dollars to paint her house. And I got a job because other contractors wanted 12 to $1,400. So I said to Paul, you know, I've got a job, but I don't have money. He says to me, why don't you go back and ask Rita? She might give you enough money for the down payment. And she did. She gave me $100. So I went to the paint store, and first thing I bought is white coveralls. I figured, if you're going to be a president in your own company, you might as well buy white coveralls. And I bought a paint and a hammer and scraper. And I carried everything to the job. And that night, I met a man who worked in a telephone company. And I borrowed a ladder. And he even delivered it. And here I was. And thank God for, for Paul, who owned the restaurant, I didn't starve. <laughs> but I think I owed him like 60-some dollars on the food bill. But I finished the job, and my next house, I met a plumber in AA, and he said, John, I own the house in Sudbury, which is only seven miles from where I was in Marlborough. 
He said, all you need is a 10-foot stepladder. So I borrowed a 10-foot stepladder, and I got all my drop cloths together, my paint and my white coveralls, and I stood in the corner, and I stopped the bus. <laughs> and this guy, he stopped, and he looks at my ladder. Then he looks at me. He says, you're not serious. <laughs> and I said, I am. I'm self-employed, and I have no other means of getting to work. I think this guy must have been an Elkie. He looks at me, and he says, If I give you a ride, would you promise you'll never do it again? <laughs> My next house was the school teacher. She taught school for 40 years and retired, she says to me. And about a week later, I said to her one night, You think you could teach me how to read and write? She said, I have taught thousands of people how to read and write. So every night I went to see her, and she helped me to memorize the 69 questions. And when I took the test, I passed. So in my... Fifty-year sobriety, I became a president in my own company, and I had a driving license. And I remember a lady asking me one night if I should consider continue on my education, and I said no. Then she said, John, do you believe that you have an excellent mind? That's the word she used. And, of course, I didn't. Uh, I, I, uh, on my way home, uh, I felt that uh, she, uh, she, I felt she was feeling sorry for me. I felt she liked me. I know she was. And I felt she was feeling sorry for me, and she's trying to make me feel good. And I didn't remember that years ago, I totally accepted it, what Canadian Army said, that I wasn't teachable, that I've never questioned it. And I was sober five years in AA, but I was not ready to be able to believe. You know, in our second step says, the key that opens the door to our program of recovery, it is willingness to believe, but to believe, you must become teachable. But I didn't believe because I couldn't forget that I lived in the skid row for seven years. I didn't believe because I couldn't forget that I didn't have an education. I couldn't forget that I washed dishes in Canadian Army for three years and a half. I couldn't forget that not too long ago I slept in a men's room. And I just felt that this teacher feeling sorry for me and she's trying to make me feel good. But I'm here to tell you, 23 years sobriety, that when he, any teacher who taught school for 40 years and retired, she knows a good mind when she sees one. <laughs> but I left. And Paul came to see me one day. He had 11 passenger station wagon. He said, John, you can buy this car for $750. I said, I don't have the money. He said, why don't you ask the lady upstairs? She might give you enough money for a down payment. 
I did, she did, and here I was in my fifth year sobriety, president in my own company. I had a driving license, and I had a car. And I said to myself, maybe I should find me a girlfriend. But I have these four seats in front missing, and that's the only thing I've lost in drinking. You know, in, in Syracuse, New York, there is a, a bar room they call Smithers. Smithers is where all the New York Indians drink. I'm a Micmac Indian. I don't drink at Smithers because Micmacs and New York Indians don't communicate too well. And every once in a while, 20 of us Micmacs would get drunk and we go to Smithers. And we would communicate. But one day, one Saturday afternoon, I have just finished unloading a boxcar with bricks, and I was drinking, and I had long leather gloves that I used unloading a boxcar, and I was walking by Smithers, but I had no intention of going in there, because I'm not that crazy. But as I was walking by, that someone opened the door and throwed this guy out, and that's where I met Smiley. Smiley is a little Irishman, weighs about 90 pounds, with a degree. I have always had trouble with these people who have a degree. So I pick him up, and I said to him, what in the hell's wrong with you? There's those Indians inside. Well, I said, they can't do that to you. He said, no, they can't. I said to him, what do you say you and I go in there and clean them up? He said, it's a good idea. <laughs> well, by the Jesus, it wasn't a good idea. <laughs> I woke up in a general hospital. I lost four teeth. And Smiley sitting there without scratch. <laughs> I should have got rid of him then. But, you know, years went by, and we would wake up in jail, and I would be all messed up. I finally said to him one day, because he dawned on me, I said, Smiley, how come that I can get so messed up and you never had a scratch? And you know, Smiley has the most sincere look in the world. That's why he's such a good bump. He looks at me and said, John, don't you know, he said, I'm a college man. <laughs> and I felt people who went to college never fight. But here I was, I had four teeth missing. And I felt if I'm going to find a decent girl, I should get my teeth fixed up. I met a dentist in AA. I've been watching him for about three weeks. <laughs> you know, he's a mild-looking gentleman. You wouldn't hurt anybody. So I cornered him one night, and I said to him, I have a little problem. I wonder if you could help me. Well, he says, what's the problem? Well, I said, I'm looking for a girlfriend. But I have these four teeth missing, and I'm wondering if you could put them back. He gave me his card, and he said, call my secretary, and I did. And I went to see him, and I said, oh, he opened my mouth. This guy, he want to pull 14 teeth before he gave me four. And I said, I shouldn't have come here. I didn't want a girl that bad. And he said, we have to fill the rest of them. I said, how long that's going to take? He said, if you accept all your commitments, three months. And you know, we learn in AA that you get what you need and not what you want. 
But three months later, I went to see him, and that's where I got my teeth. Boy, I was so happy that night, that day. I got my teeth, and I rushed back. I run upstairs, I look in the mirror, and I laugh for two hours. I grab it. I was at the meeting one night, and I met Mary. She says to me, John, I'm told that you have a car. I said, 11 passengers. She said, uh, I run a fate house home of an alcoholic women. I have nine girls, and I'm looking for someone to bring these girls to a meeting. Would you be interested? I said, I would. And that's where I met my wife, Kathy. I brought girls to a meeting that night, and on our way back from the meeting, I said to Kathy, would you like to go out on dates? She said, no. And that's another thing that I don't like. Rejection is something that I'm not very good to accept. But you know, by this time, I've been in a program better than five years, and AA was working for me. Because on my way home, I said to myself, who in the hell she thinks she is? Here she is with other girls. She has nothing. And here I am. I'm president in my own company. I own my own car, new set of teeth. Who the hell needs her anyway? So next Thursday night, I picked the girls up again, and we went to a meeting. And on our way back, I asked her if she wanted to go to show in Boston, and she said yes. So we did. We went to show in Boston, and on our way back, I asked her to marry me. She said, but I don't know you. And I said, we still have five miles to go. We'll get a point. <laughs> so we got married. We got married, and we were talking about it last night. You know, there were only six people when we got married. <laughs> That's why we're still married. But we stopped the car in Marlboro, and we count our exchange. We had $85, and trying to figure out where to go. We decided to go back home. By this time, I have been away for 21 years, and I don't know why we always want to go back. Someone said once, you never go back, and that's true. Besides, I was not ready to face my past. Bill Wilson said that, for most of us, to be able to accept truth in our past must have a spiritual support. By ourselves, the past will rob us and too often will be deprive us from the spirit that we need to find the freedom that we look for in life. Someone once said that every human being must have purpose and direction. In order to have these things, you must first of all become responsible for your own footsteps. And my past is something that I, that I never wanted to accept. When my father died, 
my mother used to write north to an Indian agent. Fourteen miles away. And she would wrap uh, a note in my hands, and I would walk, looking for food. But in those days, there was no food. And when my family would cry at night, my mother used to say, It's all right. Tomorrow, we'll send John to an Indian agent. My mother used to say to me, I'm so happy that you're so strong and you never cry. And I would walk 14 miles, and in those five years, were difficult years. I remember sleeping with my mother when she was dying. And I asked her if I was going to die too. And you know, mothers are very special people. I still remember the look she gave me, and she said, no, son. You're so different, and you're so strong. But I wasn't. It's just that I have, it's just that I have always been a person who never shows, never tell you how I feel. I remember my mother asking me to bring a note to an Indian agent because she's been in bed for two years, and she wanted a jar of Vaseline. And it was in the winter time, and I carried a note, and I arrived there, and I gave it to an Indian agent. He looked at it, and he threw it on the snow and shut the door in my face. And I really felt like killing somebody. And I remember as the years have gone by in the program, and, you know, in, uh, in our maintaining steps, St. Francis talks about praying to understand rather than to be understood. He says, pray that you love rather than to seek love. And I used to leave the meeting and I used to say it's wrong. It is wrong to ask a man like me to to forgive a person. If only I have a chance to get even first. Simply because it, it is only fair now that I'm grown and that I am a man. Now that I can take care of myself, it is wrong to ask me to let go something that is unjust. Something is wrong. And I had a lot of trouble with that. And I remember talking to somebody one night and he said, John, I think you missed the point. And I said, what's that? That St. Francis said, that he wants to be an instrument. Well, I wasn't ready for that. You know, there is only one way when you deal with God, and that is his way. So many of us have so many good reasons why we should get even. But without question, that hate is the tool of self-destruction whether it's justifiable or not, one who has eight dies inside. And I remember Kathy and I arriving in that reservation, and all I could think about was that note. And we turned around, and I could have hurt my wife. 
because I'm crazy and I was driving too fast. I didn't think straight. I, I, I was running, I suppose. But when I woke up, I was going 80 miles an hour with that crazy station wagon. And uh, Kathy didn't say anything. <laughs> she didn't know what the hell was going on. We came back and we had $35 left. And we moved into uh, a three-room apartment. And all Kathy and I had when we moved in there was the coffee table that was given to us from a fate house. And even newlyweds cannot sleep in coffee tables. <laughs> so we slept on a floor. But you can have a lot of fun on a floor, too. If you. <laughs> Let me discourage I spoke in Westchester County one time, and I mentioned the fact that you can have a lot of fun on a floor. And after the meeting, this lady came to me and said, Young man, she said, I don't know how much fun you can have on the floor, she said, but I know you can have a lot of fun on the Oriental rush. <laughs> so I said to her, at least you identify. <laughs> but while we laying on the floor, I said to Kathy, you know, I wanted a boy because I'm alone. And I just wanted someone to carry my name. I said to her, if you give me a boy, I'll buy you a diamond. <laughs> It's funny now, you know, you're laying on the floor because you cannot afford a bed. But you're promising a diamond. But I think the beautiful thing about Kathy and I, she was sick enough, so she believed me. <laughs> and that Christmas, my wife was in a hospital. And, you know, I'm 35 years old, and I walked into a bank. First time in my life, I want $200, and they told me, that I couldn't have it because I didn't have a collateral. And I didn't know what in hell it meant. You know, people in AA talk about everything but collateral. <laughs> Nobody talks about collateral. I didn't know what in hell it was. I didn't know whether you eat it, carry it in your pocket, or whatever it was. So I went to see Paul who owned the restaurant, and I said to him, you know, they wouldn't let me have any money. They, they want collateral. He said, John, what you want to do is pray. I said, Paul, you don't understand. They don't want God. They need collateral. <laughs> so I walked into Sudbury and uh, Hudson, and this old gentleman's retiring that year from the bank. And, you know, I told him the simple, honest story. He said, well, it's, it's, it's really nice. But he said, we don't lend money that way. But then he says, you know, I've always prided myself when I've seen an honest face. Then he says to me, how much money? And you know, he sounded so good. He said, how much money do you want anyway? And he sounded so good. I said, $400. <laughs> <laughs> I just couldn't let it go. <laughs> and he gave me a little preaching and $400. And he said, if you pay your bills on time, you can always borrow money from this bank. And I went to Marlboro and I bought, I, I went to jewelry store and I said to this guy, you show me the best diamond that you have. And he did. I said, now you show me the cheapest one that you have. And he said, you can have this one for $150. I said, I'll take it. And he said, you want to charge it, of course. And I said, of course. And I brought a diamond to my wife and I went home and I got a call at 3 o'clock in the morning and my wife crying, and she said, honey, it's a girl. I said, you're kidding. I already bought feathers for the boy. 
but it was a girl. Next Christmas came along, and my wife was in there again. I received a call, and she's still crying. Honey, she said, it's a girl. But you know, they say an example is a great teacher. I went over to see her, and I said to her, don't worry about it. Just have an open mind, and we'll try again. <laughs> that I learned in the program. So next Christmas came along. My wife was in there again, and I received a call, and she's crying. She said, honey, it's twin boys. <laughs> so sometimes God will give you what you want. He just wants you to work hard for it. <laughs> Not good, huh? <laughs> so, uh... A couple of years later, we have a girl came along, and then a boy came along, and our daughter will be 18 this Christmas, and thank God we haven't had any problems with them as far as a school or drugs or rules, so we, we have much to be grateful for. Kathy and I, for me, well, certain things I should tell you perhaps because they're they're kind of, they're honorable in my life. Once I was hired by the government. When I was hired by the government, I've already owned a 14-room house. I had two cars. They wanted me to be a director in three reservations in the state of Maine to sign nine-year contracts. I went over there, and they didn't want to offer enough money. And by this time, I knew how much I needed to support my family, and I said, I would love to have a job, but I need more money. And I left. And two weeks later, they called me, and they gave me the money that I wanted, and they sent the truck up, and they moved me to Maine. So I did, I threw my cover all the way. And I bought a suit, and shoes, and tied the match, and I moved my family to Calais, Maine. They even asked me to choose the color that I needed from my wall-to-wall -wall carpet. <laughs> so I walk into my office, first time in my life I met my secretary. She built like a brick house. <laughs> I look at my telephone and it rings buttons all lit up. I didn't dare to touch it. And here I am. The next office was Dr. Collins, the psychiatrist. The next job is a psychologist, and upstairs is an Indian education, and here I am. Can you imagine if someone had told me when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, with long hair, wine stores, dirty, can't pay 35 cents a night in a mission, cannot read and write. If someone had told me that you come back, John, and one day you'll be a director in three reservations, can you imagine? I suppose, on the other hand, if you see me laying in the sidewalk with long hair and wine stores, would you stop and say, now there lies a professionist? <laughs> I mean, you're not that smart. While I was over there, I received a call from the University of Maine. They want an Indian 
uh, uh, speaker in the adult education program. She said, we pay $40 an hour. Would you be interested? I said, I would. I went over there, and I spoke for one hour, and I was so impressed with what I said, I gave them half an hour free. <laughs> but what I consider the best thing that ever happened to me, in terms of uh, rubbing shoulders to brains in life, this year, I was invited to go to New Orleans to do the seminar in Loyola University. There I met Dr. Perch. I remember when I arrived there, they had a folder, letter folder, and I can read enough to find out where the hell these people come from. And I opened the page, and they're all brains. Crazy, but they're smart. And I was reading the whole page of this man. I said, unbelievable. Anybody have so many degrees, school year, president year, oh, God almighty. And I said to myself, I wonder what they say when it comes to me. <laughs> Didn't say nothing at all. I only had one line. But he had like Father John Powers. He had the television program. He writes books, helps thousands of people. And he had other psychiatrists who are members of AA. And me. And me. But you know, what we are asked to give in life, you will never learn in a book. No matter how smart you are. Do you know that what I give in life, I paid a dear price for it. I am not ashamed of it. And I don't feel that I am unworthy. Because what I have, what I have to give is exactly what God gave me. And you know, when I get up Wednesday morning and when I spoke for 45 minutes, I told the truth. There is no substitute for the truth. The Indian once said that there is only thing that it is honorable in man. That's the truth, and there is nothing to replace it. And Alcoholics Anonymous has taught me one thing. To tell the truth about my life. It took years to do that. But I can do it now. But I would have never believed that if I should tell the truth, that Loyola University would ask me no more than I believed that Jason would call me up from Lincoln, Nebraska to listen to a person like me who doesn't even talk with English, who doesn't have an education, when you don't need too much brain to look around that they are so many are better qualified than I. There is something very special about God's will. I remember after I left home, two months later, I received a check for $300 <laughs> for the 45 minutes talk. Can you imagine, Canadian Army once said, that I was not teachable. 
And to think that now that I'm 64 years old, and I say that because I wear it well, It's the humility that I have. It's the truth. <laughs> now that I'm 54 years old and I stand up here tonight knowing that I have a wife that loves me and I don't brag about that. Knowing that uh, I have kids are all right. But more than that, to be able to stand here and to know that I belong here and that I have shared my life this evening because that's what I have been taught to do in the program. What AA has actually taught me is to be myself. Not wishing to be, oh yes, it's important to have a 14-room house. I know I have worked very hard for that. It is important to have a new car. It's even better when you have two. <laughs> it's important to have nice clothes. Before I came here, I went out and bought two suits. <laughs> Just I, did, I had to decide which one to wear. It's important to have a wife that loves you. It's important to have all these things. But as important as they are, not one of them are the ingredients that nourishes human hunger. The ingredient that nourishes the human hunger doesn't come because you have wife that loves you. It doesn't come because you have six kids that loves you. It doesn't come because you have big house or a few dollars in bank. I don't think it's by accident that AA says when we get sober, come to believe, man must reach across from the hand that strikes him, for there lies the power that awakens the spirit that will eventually find those things which are the essential ingredients that nourishes the human hunger. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter. There is something very beautiful about our program, I believe. What makes it beautiful is that all of us here are willing to help each other. And that's what makes beautiful about our fellowship. People don't do that any, anymore. And I think any new, newcomer who walks into a group like this, he doesn't realize just how lucky he is. All he has to do is come back to us. Thank you very much.